Hey, Curbsiders, you're about to hear a live episode that Paul and I recorded at the Tri-Service ACP meeting. That's Army, Navy, and Air Force. This was done September 9th, 2021. The goal was to cover an entire year's worth of practice-changing pearls and articles that we've learned through doing the Curbsiders podcast. So we cover a really broad range of topics in a rapid-fire fashion. One quick disclaimer is that Paul was recording from a different location and using a different mic than usual, so please forgive us that his audio is not quite up to our usual high quality. That said, the material more than makes up for it, so please listen and enjoy. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders and... Paul, I have to say, it doesn't feel weird at all to have a hundred so people just watching me and you record a podcast when normally it's just me and you uh, talking to each other in our pajamas. I mean, I, uh, to be fair, it's no more awkward than usual. I think we're being perfectly honest with ourselves. <laughs> okay, that's that's fair. All right, so we're going to call this show, this is a Tales from the Curbside episode. Paul, you know that, but the audience doesn't. And what do we do on Tales from the Curbside? That's where, since Paul and I are experts in nothing... We, we channel the experts that we've talked to uh, over this past year, and we are going to bring you some of our top internal medicine pearls. Um, and I should, I should note that we have no financial disclosures related to the content of this presentation. And since I know this is how you roll here, I would like to say that the views expressed on this podcast represent those of the host and not those of the Department of Defense or our employers. Now, Paul, before we get into it, can you tell them who are we and what exactly is it that we do? Sure. Happy to, as always, Matt. Um, as some of you may know, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Today, as you mentioned, um, we're actually going to recap, I think, over the past year, articles that were meaningful to us and may have changed our practice and talk about some episodes that I think especially changed the way that we practice medicine as well. Um, for those of you who are familiar with us, this should seem hauntingly familiar. For those of you who are not this will seem like a weird melange of stuff from uh, <laughs> some lightly unprofessional people, but hopefully um, everyone gets at least a little bit of something out of this. All right, Paul. So we're going to move through the, I guess, systems, or we're going to move through the fields of internal medicine, the subspecialties, and go through some things and talk about what we've learned. This one shorter is better, Paul. I loved that the ACP came out with these guidelines this year where they talked about a couple of these common diagnoses that we see as internists. And for many of these, you can treat for five days or less. And that includes pyelonephritis if you're using a fluoroquinolone. Paul, did anything about this change your practice? Were you already, were you already doing this? Uh, no, I, I had not been doing this. I feel like I, I feel a little bit more for your license to do it. I think we both trained in the days where everything was 14 days at a minimum. So now to so we're old enough now that they're actually shortening duration to five days. It feels like a blessing to be able to kind of not expose people to potential toxic exposures. So this was this was a gift. Yeah, that's right. All you young people out there uh, listening to us here, uh, it used to be longer is better. You're like, oh, I'm worried about the patient. Longer <laughs> is better. But nowadays, it seems like shorter is better. Brad Spellberg has a website where he is just constantly cataloging all of the shorter is better stuff. 
So one thing that, and I have asterisks next to these, the community acquired pneumonia, the, the ACP guideline says five days minimum, but there has been some like whispers in the literature of treating for even up to three days. And I think the key thing is when you're treating pneumonia is you want to see clinical stability. Usually it happens pretty quickly within the first like 48 hours. And if you're seeing clinical stability, then you know that allows you to shorten the course. Paul, remember we talked with Dr. Bahuma Tatanji about UTI. She mentioned, or, or and cellulitis, she mentioned sometimes she'll prescribe like a range, take five to seven days, and then tell the patient you can stop at five days if you're better. Or sometimes she'll check in with them during that period and decide if she wants to go the five or the seven days. But she writes the script so she has that flex built into it. I think the unspoken caveat here is that for patients you're concerned about, make sure that you have short-term follow-up. Like this feels great, but also... It's not a lot of these things are not said it and forget it. You know, you do want to make sure that you have a follow up plan to see the patients back and make sure there is, in fact, clinical improvement, especially if you're dealing with things on the outside, on the outpatient side of things. And this list, this is not a new list. This was a blog post by Paul Sachs, and it's actually like eight years old, but it was new to me and uh, related to a lot of the different stuff we did recently. Just reminding people, like, this is a handy list to have that these are highly bioavailable oral antibiotics. So, antibiotics where you can get almost the same kind of blood levels that you would be getting by giving them IV. So when you're talking about switching people from oral to IV or Paul, my favorite is sometimes in the hospital, you just run out of IV. Like they're getting a drip for this. They're getting a drip for that. Why are we, why are we giving them a drip of metronidazole when their gut (laughs) is working and we can just give them a pill that's going to give them the same levels. So uh, think about this stuff, people. It's, it's pretty cool. Make you look, make you look smart and it's good for your patient because it's, it's less fluid. And, and Paul, these, a lot of these IV fluids come in like normal saline. And uh, I don't know about your feelings, but someone with heart failure getting an antibiotic, I don't want to give them an extra 500 mLs of saline if I don't need to. Yes, right. Uh, turning our patients into sponges are, is generally regarded as bad practice. Agreed. All right. Now, Paul, with diverticulitis, I don't know what I'm doing. I just give everybody a quinolone, maybe throw in some metronidazole, and then call it a day. That's surely the best thing to do for them, right? So, so yeah, of course not. But I, I'm sure that was probably a prior practice pattern. So I, the, the question here is there there have been a couple of things that have come up about diverticulitis over the past year um, that have kind of reaffirmed, I think, some people's practices made us feel better about other things. So specifically, I want to talk about this article that was in uh, Annals that actually compared uh, amoxiclav versus metronidazole plus afloroquinolone for the treatment of first-time uncomplicated diverticulitis. I feel like, I'm not sure if this has been your practice, Matt, but I, I think, especially in the area of COVID, I've been seeing more patients who've been presenting who are scared to go to the ER, who sort of fit the clinical picture and would like this managed as an outpatient. I've actually had this a couple of times, and so this article was a particular interest to me. I think historically, it has been super satisfying to prescribe two antibiotics, and then and I think in terms, I'm sure there's practice variation everywhere, but it, would, it was often just sort of ciproflagyl. It was almost like catechism, diverticulitis, that's what you treated with. I don't think amoxiclav was even on the radar for a lot of folks where I practiced. And what this study looked at is it was it compared two pretty gigantic data sets, um, one of which was a Medicare claims data and the other was a private insurance cohort, and looked for new patient exposure. So it was this active comparator new user model, uh, abbreviated ACNU, which is my new favorite epidemiologic uh, acronym. And so basically, they looked at patients who had an outpatient diagnosis of diverticulitis uh, who were either prescribed amoxiclav or metronidazole. And their outcomes of particular interest, they were looking at a one-year risk for inpatient admission. They were looking for a risk of urgent surgery, I think also defined within one year. And they were also looking at the instance of Clostridium difficile infection. And then a separate outcome they were looking at that was not a primary outcome was a three-year risk of elective surgery. So did patients with 
outpatient diverticulitis ultimately need to have elective surgery to manage it. And that your takeaways for this are that, that there were no really important differences in terms of diverticulitis-related outcomes. So at one year, patients who received amoxiclonib versus patients who received metronidazole plus fluoroquinolone, they both had about the same amount of risk for admission. There was no difference in their risk for urgent surgery. There was no difference in their three-year elective surgery risk. So both of the treatments seemed relatively comparable in terms of your diverticulitis-related outcomes. Importantly, the Medicare cohort specifically had a higher incidence of C. diff infection for those patients treated with metronidazole and fluoroquinolone compared to those treated with the moxiclav. So even, even the metronidazole thrown in there for a prophylaxis did not seem to actually help prevent C. diff, um, just in case you had that question. So patients treated with the moxiclav had lower C. diff rates. So bottom line, I think as you're considering your outpatient treatment for simple, first-time, uncomplicated diverticulitis, you can feel pretty good about amoxiclav, which will do the same job as uh, the traditional Cipro metronidazole, but probably has lower adverse uh, events related to the antimicrobial use. So I, I think I will probably be favoring amoxiclav in my own practice, Matt. I'm not sure if this changed anything that you did. I am definitely on the amoxiclav train for this as well. And maybe we'll talk about whether or not we need to prescribe antibiotics at all for diverticulitis. But the fluoroquinolones, Paul, we've been down on them for a while on the show. Paul, when you and I were in residency uh, 11 years ago, we were prescribing these with wild <laughs> abandon for yep. everyone, everyone with acute bronchitis, sinusitis, whatever, just throw it at them. And I mean, there's many problems with fluoroquinolones. Uh, they have a black box warning for the past at least four years. I think it's five years now. So I, I have a high threshold to use one of them and I try to reserve them for bigger gun infections. And so for diverticulitis, I think people should be Considering amoxiclav, if you can, it's more C. diff friendly, as we said, and uh, some uh, just overall better risk profile. But Paul, do we need to prescribe any antibiotics for diverticulitis? So it's an interesting question. This came up um, during the the national ACP meeting. There was, um, I think, one of the the quick hits was whether or not we should be even treating simple first-time uncomplicated diverticulitis with antibiotics at all. Can we just observe these patients? And I think one of the things that's interesting about this patient population is that happily adverse events in these patients is incredibly rare. So like it's, it's actually kind of hard to study what things do worse because most patients just tend to do pretty well regardless of what you do to them, which is, <laughs> I think, sort of lately reassuring and also makes an argument for a more benign antibiotic if, if that's what you're going to go with. The AHRQ, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, during one of their guidelines actually stated with low strength of evidence that you may not even need to treat uncomplicated diverticulitis with antibiotics because there's no super great evidence that it actually impacts pain or length of stay or need for surgery, that kind of stuff. But again, because adverse events are so rare, the evidence is not super strong. And the studies that they based this light recommendation on have some limitations as well. There are two European studies, if I remember correctly. And in those studies, even for the patients who underwent um, quote-unquote observation, the vast majority of them were actually admitted to the hospital, and the vast majority were also getting IV fluids. So even though they weren't getting IV antimicrobials, they were still getting IV fluids. And I think we can probably agree that when we think outpatient management of something, we don't think about a patient surrounded by a care team um, with those patients getting IV fluids. So I'm not sure it's completely uh, applicable to my own outpatient practice. So I the final bullet point, I think, remains the same. I will probably remain a coward, meaning I will probably <laughs> opt for antibiotic therapy, but I, I think I'll lean towards a moxiclad based on the emerging literature. Yeah, I, you know, I think it would be a shared decision for me, Paul. I'll, I'll probably err on the side of being a coward as well. But if a patient, I, I have had a fair amount of patients be, see me and they'll be like, oh yeah, two weeks ago, I think I had another thing of <laughs> diverticulitis. Yeah. I just took some NSAIDs and I was fine. And if they feel it's not that bad and they don't want to work it up and, you know, I'm not going to get a CAT scan and pursue antibiotics on every patient. So I think this 
if they're reasonably well and they're, you know, the gut seems to be working otherwise, maybe, maybe, maybe you can go along without antibiotics, but definitely an area to watch. Hey everyone, you know that I am a huge fan of our sponsor, BetterHelp. In fact, even before they were on a sponsor for the show, I was using the service. It's been almost a year now. The reason I love this sponsor is because they've made it so easy to get yourself the help that you need. I know for me, a huge barrier was I didn't want to feel stigmatized. I was embarrassed about maybe having to go see a therapist, but this makes it easy to do this from the privacy of your own home. BetterHelp is going to assess your needs. They're going to match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and you can start communicating with them in under 48 hours. They have a broad range of expertise available, and they're available to clients worldwide. It's really easy to use. You just schedule a weekly video or phone session with your therapist, and that's it. One thing I like is that BetterHelp tends to be more affordable than the traditional offline therapy, and it makes it really easy and free to change a therapist because, let's be honest, it might take you a couple tries to find someone that you really connect with. So audience, get yourself the help that you need. Stop procrastinating like I was doing and visit betterhelp.com slash curb. That's better, H-E-L-P, and join the over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional therapists in all 50 states. Curbsiders listeners get a special offer, 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash curb. All right, so what's next, Paul? MRSA swabs for de-escalation. This is another thing we learned. I can't remember if this was at SGM or ACP, but... I just wanted to highlight this because I was classically taught that, okay, anyone comes in with pneumonia, get a MRSA swab, that has a high negative predictive value, so you can rule out MRSA pneumonia, uh, especially if they don't have like necrotizing pneumonia, that makes you think about that. But it turns out that the VA did this study where they, they looked at MRSA swabs that had been done on admission, and then they looked at people who had cultures within seven days of various different body site, body fluids or body sites, and did those MRSA swabs predict whether or not they would have MRSA grow elsewhere. And it turns out they weren't very good for their positive predictive value, but for their negative predictive value uh, for the urine, the abdomen, the bloodstream, they were all even better than the respiratory tract, which is what we classically think of using it for. So you can, th- I don't know why, Paul, the wounds did the worst, but uh, they did. That That's a little counterintuitive. but you know, for me, the take home of this, and this was in clinical infectious diseases in 2020, is that for my patients who are not critically ill and where I'm not really suspecting MRSA any infection anyway, I might be able to peel off the vancomycin a little earlier because as one of the previous presentations today said, it's it's kind of a pain to to have vancomycin on board following areas under the curve or trough levels, however you're doing it. So I would say audience can consider using this to try to de-escalate antibiotics. Paul, is that something that you've seen done or that you think you'll be doing based on this? Well, happily, I, I, I'm not doing much inpatient medicine anymore, um, which is probably good for my, my baseline anxiety. But I think I, I would now feel more comfortable de-escalating. Again, I think the point that you made is, is important. And, and a stable patient who feels like they're clinically improving anyway, I think that just sort of adds weight to that decision. If someone is critically ill, or I, I might still, I might not put as much weight into it, despite what the science says. Because again, going back to the previous slide, I'm a coward. 
Yeah. And I would tell the audience, if, if the MRSA swab is positive, don't use that as evidence that you need to continue the anti-MRSA right. coverage because, as I said, the positive predictive value, not very good. So you can't use it the, the opposite way. Paul, we're going to talk some endocrine. And I, I know you're going to tell me that I need to be really worried if my older adults have prediabetes because they are certainly going to need insulin in the very near future, correct? Well, happily, you can quit your Q2 month um, A1C checking in your patients with impaired glucose tolerance or diabetes. So there's some evidence showing that actually those patients tend to be stable, I guess is the right word. But let's talk about what the data actually show and what the study was. So this was this was a, a study in JAM Internal Medicine that looked at the risk of progression to diabetes among older adults with prediabetes. And I, I obviously, I think we all have a lot of patients who have prediabetes or impaired glucose tolerance or however you want to label it. And part of one of the issues is, is that this is sort of a, a moving target in terms of definition. And actually, one of the things this study talks about that I won't get into as much is you could define different people define prediabetes in different ways. It can mean A1C from 5.7 to 6.4. Um, I think some European societies called 6 to 6.4. And then there's this idea of impaired fasting glucose where you have a blood sugar between 120 and 125, I want to say. So that there's different definitions in how you sort of roll those all together will actually impact the true prevalence of what the disease is. But in any case, what this study did is looked at the risks associated with prediabetes among older adults in a community-based setting. And it was this prospective cohort analysis. They follow these patients moving forward. And their main outcome measure for this particular study was incident diabetes in patients with prediabetes. Great. So a good size study, about 3,400 patients, older, age 71 to 90. And the prevalence of diabetes in this population depends upon your definition of prediabetes. So um, again, depending on the moving target, it was anywhere between 30 to 70%. So not nothing, I guess, is the big takeaway. So a bunch of patients had this. And the instant diabetes, this is a little bit sticky, was defined as a self-reported physician diagnosis. So their doctor told them they had diabetes, which <laughs> hopefully is pretty good. Or they were using glucose-lowering medications, which Again, probably okay, but I think there are instances where you might use a metformin or a GLP-1 and the patient may not be truly diabetic, but that's, again, that's probably the exception and not the rule. Or a little bit more reassuringly, an A1C greater than 6.5 or a fasting glucose greater than 126, so the more traditional measures of diabetes. So here's here's the important bullet point. At five-year follow-up with these patients in this prospective cohort, patients who started off with a baseline A1C between 5.7 to 6.4, of those patients... 60% of them stayed pre-diabetic. They just, they stayed exactly the same. There wasn't anything to do about them. 20% of them passed away. 13%, uh, this number kind of surprised me, regressed to normal glycemia. So if you watch them long enough, they just stopped being pre-diabetic. So that's nice. And then 9% progressed to diabetes. And again, not nothing, um, but probably in the grand scheme of things, not as important as we may have been giving it weight for before. So the idea here is that pre-diabetes exists as a construct to let you know if someone's going to progress to diabetes or not. That's really why it's there uh, and why it's defined. It's not really super pathologic in and of itself. Um, and the progression to diabetes is not that common in this patient population. In fact, they were twice as likely to die as they were to become diabetic. So the takeaway point in the study, and I, which is one I agree with, is maybe rather than checking um, your, your every two-month interval A1Cs, Dr. Watto, maybe you can be focusing <laughs> on these patients' cardiovascular risk factors and, and, and really mitigating those because really that's the disease processes that are going to ultimately kill the patient. And maybe we can probably relax with the A1C testing. I know, I'm not sure about you, Matt, but my own personal practice, if someone had prediabetes and they were going to be getting labs anyway, I'd be like, eh, why don't I just throw in the A1C just for fun so you see what it shows? And I think we can probably just, I, at least I can probably relax a little bit because it's it's very uncommon for these patients to, to progress to avert diabetes compared to other outcomes. I think that's absolutely correct. Uh, I will say that in my practice, uh, it's always, I, I do a double take if I see someone who's not in the prediabetes <laughs> range. Yep, yep. And 
I've definitely had the group of younger people who are hanging out in the pre-diabetes range and then all of a sudden they accelerate, they start to get symptoms. But you know, after I read this, the reason I, I loved highlighting this study is because I do feel like I see this patient all the time. Like all these older folks who I'm following, they have the A1C in the pre-diabetes range and we don't really do anything about it. So I think unless they develop symptoms, unless they have other metabolic risk factors that you also think are getting worse, like maybe they're gaining weight, you know, you know, maybe I'd be more aggressive about testing, but I think certainly I wouldn't test more than once a year. And then if they don't want you to test them at all, then I think you can probably feel comfortable doing that just following based on symptoms. Yeah. When we were putting this together, you also made a great point uh, about using this study to actually have shared decision-making with the patient. I think it's, it makes it easier to kind of define risk and sort of talk about what pre-diabetes means to this particular patient population. So I, I think it's, it's a really helpful study, even though it may not hugely change how you practice medicine. So, Paul, I don't love basal bolus insulin regimens for many reasons. The ACE guidelines have two of their top three like goals of treating diabetes are no weight gain and no hypoglycemia. So basal bolus insulin basically flies directly in the face of that. They got to inject themselves four times a day, maybe test four times a day. Can we get away from this madness, Paul? Well, it's, this slide has an animation that took me four and a half hours to put together. So I'm just going to ask you to advance one more time. <laughs> Boom. There it was. So look out cardiologists. They thought they had the market cornered on catchy trial names, but then endocrinology comes up from behind with the beyond a trial. And I could not tell you what that stands for if to save my life. But in any case, this is from a study by Juliana et al. in diabetes care in June of this year. And basically what they looked at, Matt, was your, your favorite regimen, the basal bolus regimen versus basal insulin plus a GLP-1 receptor agonist versus a basal insulin plus an SGLT-2 inhibitor. So the new kids on the block plus basal insulin or your traditional basal bolus regimen. And these patients were randomized. It was a pragmatic trial. There were no um, placebo injections or anything like that. And the patients were randomized one to one to one. And the medications were titrated, quote, according to clinical practice, whatever that means. And the primary efficacy outcome, and we could probably talk for three and a half hours about the utility of this or not, was the change in A1C at six months. <laughs> so I think as a as a marker of whether or not you're going to die, that's probably not the best one, but we, that's not the point here. So we'll, we'll move past that. This slide also took me four and a half hours to make. <laughs> uh, but after, after six months, the takeaways here is that the A1C decreased by about 0.6% in all three groups. So whether or not you're on basal bolus insulin or basal insulin plus a GLP-1 agent or a basal insulin plus an SGLT-2, your A1C dropped by about the same amount. So great. Feels good. Not surprisingly, in the basal bolus group, your total insulin requirement increased that makes sense. You're, you're getting more insulin and decrease in the simplified regimens. Again, that's the way you would hope it would work out. Otherwise, someone wasn't following the protocols. And if you care about this kind of thing, the basal bolus regimen had better fasting glucoses. So that's that's a win. But they also had more injections. And I remember a study that looked at patients who are on a basal bolus regimen. Um, we may have talked about this before. That showed that patients who are injecting themselves four times a day have a comparable quality of life to someone who's had a minor stroke. Just be, between the injections and the uh, sticking yourself, check your blood sugars, like it is a real burden uh, to one's own health care. If, uh, if it's necessary, it's necessary, but sometimes it's a lot to ask of a patient. It's also important to note that those patients who receive more insulin got more hypoglycemia uh, compared to other regimens. But I will say, you know, this didn't look at sort of the out outcomes that I think we get most excited about. So the, the major adverse cardiovascular events or mortality. So I, I would love to see this study or something like this extended out for years to kind of see what things show. And I think at this point, we know based on the mortality data and the cardiovascular data of the newer agents. But I, I think this, again, should make us question whether or not we should just be leaping right to basal bolus regimen in patients if we have other options that might control their insulin in a comparable or control their blood sugars in a comparable way, and then also add benefit of, say, nephroprotection 
or cardiovascular protection, which I think we know insulin does not necessarily do. So I, I think this this challenges the basal bolus um, modality a little bit, and, and hopefully it'll change the way we do things moving forward. I'm not sure, Matt, if this changes what you're doing already. I think you're already pretty anti-basal bolus. Yeah, I'm already on with. this. Paul, we have this is hot. Uh, this is a little preview for people. We we recently spoke with Dr. Jeff Colburn, who is you know a fabulous endocrinologist from the military, and uh, Dr. Colburn was telling us you have to look at how good and how safe these new agents are. They're hitting the hard clinical endpoints and and having real benefit in a short amount of time without really like pounding down the A1C. Like it's like you can have an A1C between seven and eight and still have. The benefits, cardiovascular mortality, renal benefits. So we should be re-examining people we have on basal bolus if they're type two, and maybe some of them can come off the basal bolus and go on to these newer newer generation agents and simplify things and have better outcomes for them. So that's about as much as I can hold myself back, Paul, because I really get <laughs> no, sure. this topic really uh, gets me, you know, fired up here. Well, uh, thank you for that, Paul. Um, I believe now you're going to tell us about knee pain and. I always thought that physical therapy had no place in the treatment of, of chronic knee pain. Tell me, am I right or am I wrong? I mean, wrong as per usual, uh, Matt, okay, but I appreciate you setting you. me up. Yeah. No, it's, it's you know, I, I, I think the opposite, for, I know that you're kidding, the opposite for me, I tend to sort of vaguely refer patients with lots of musculoskeletal issues to physical therapy um, just because it seems so benign and, and hopefully it will actually help to some extent. Um, but this, this study, this came out, I want to say it came out sort of when COVID was um, really sort of taking over the press and just sort of sank beneath the waves, but I, I, I thought it was exciting and important. But basically, this came out in the New England Journal of Medicine by Dale et al. And this, this infographic, I think, is quite nice, this, uh, this visual abstract. So it was a small study that looked at 156 patients, uh, randomized to physical therapy or glucocorticoid injections, and then examined their, their WOMAC score, which is a score of pain, I want to say flexibility and function. Uh, and, and saw who did better. And the takeaway here, not to not to spoil it for myself, is that patients who had PT had less pain and disability in one year than those patients who received glucocorticoid injections. So now that I've already ruined it for you, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about it, but we'll go quick since I think we're, we're tight on time. Go ahead and advance, Matt. So in terms of background, um, yeah, details is not great. Um, apologies yeah. to, to everyone. <laughs> But basically, this, this background slide is just to point out that most patients um, previously are much more likely to be referred for knee injections than they were for physical therapy, both inside and outside the military health system. But the one database that I looked at in particular, uh, one year after diagnosis of knee DJD, 40% of patients received a steroid injection compared to 30% that received physical therapy and 13% received both. Importantly, one of the ACR guidelines recommends against manual therapy alone over exercise in patients with osteoarthritis of the knee. So not a hard recommendation against manual therapy, but it's not a replacement for exercise was the point they were making here. So I just wanted to mention that. But the way this study was designed is, as I mentioned, the patients were randomized. They had a diagnosis of osteoarthritis by ACR criteria and with radiographic evidence. And they were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to either physical therapy or injection. In the injection group, they were seen at time zero at four months and nine months, and they received up to three injections over that one-year trial period, which seems a lot to me. And a lot of the patients took them up on that and got, um, there's a mean of 2.6 injections over the study period. The patients in the physical therapy group went up to eight treatment sessions over an initial month-long period, and they could do additional sessions if they wanted to. And these sessions included manual therapy prior to exercise, so there were things like stretching um, and just making sure the patients could tolerate the, the exercises before starting. And then they looked at the change in the WOMAX score. And just as a quick reminder, a 12 to 16% improvement is the minimally clinically important difference. So when you're measuring the score, you want to see at least a 15% change just to actually call it meaningful. And the next slide summarizes this nicely. So the, the WOMAX score, the top score, the highest functioning, less pain score is 240. 
and most patients started around 100 in this particular study. And you'll see here that both groups did fine. Like they did better with the modality that they were chosen for. So steroid injections did help. But it looks like PT actually helped more and continued to help over the study period. So whereas it looks like glucocorticoid injections sort of tapered off, patients who received physical therapy seem to have continued improvement in their scores. And I think the takeaway here is that I think we have concerns about repeated intraarticular steroid injections, just knowing about the, the cartilage erosion and the fact that you sort of get diminishing returns, whereas physical therapy seems benign and now seems, according to this study at least, to even provide pretty substantial help. So I think impacted my practice is I had already referred a lot of patients to physical therapy, but I felt much better about it now. And so I, I think I am now armed with this sort of data point to tell my patients, listen, patients who do physical therapy do better than injections. So if we can spare you those, I'd prefer to. And I, I think I, I get a little bit more patient buy-in now trying to sell it that way. So it's, it's not really changed my practice, but it has made me feel better about it, which is always something that I will take. Yeah. You always want to feel good about yourself, Paul. It happens so rarely, uh, just, just once. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, Paul, I'm always wondering, I feel like most patients should have at least one, maybe two, three orthopedic surgeries in their lifetime, because we have really <laughs> strong evidence that these surgeries are really where it's at. Uh, so tell me, am I right or am I wrong? Yeah, you, you would think that all orthopedic surgeries are, in fact, a silver bullet and definitive treatment. But it turns out, um, this is going to be a quick hit for you all. This was a study in BMJ that looked at 10 common orthopedic uh, surgery procedures. It was this so-called umbrella review. So they basically did an analysis of meta-analyses and looked at 10 common procedures. Um, and you can advance the fancy pants animation. This slide took me six hours. <laughs> and one more for me, please. Audience, is anyone keeping track of how many hours the slides took Paul? I feel like he's complaining. Uh, Listen, I'm just or uh, bragging. Maybe he's bragging. Yeah, no, I'm just I'm just showing that I care deeply about this presentation, and I think it shows. <laughs> uh, but basically, it, and I want to make the point here that the point that they're making is not that they're that these things are worse than non-operative therapy. It's the point is that there's not a whole lot of evidence to support a lot of the things that we do. So. For instance, total hip replacement and arthroscopic meniscal repair have not been compared well to non-operative management. So we can't say if they're better than non-operative management or not from an evidence-based standpoint. The ones that seem to actually have superiority compared to non-operative management would be... <laughs> Someone's asking me about billing. We'll, we'll get back to you. Total knee replacement, <laughs> carpal tunnel release. These had evidence of superiority, but not surprisingly, because there was surgery involved, were more prone to complication. And then this laundry list at the end that includes things like rotator cuff repair, uh, lumbar spine decompression, lumbar spinal fusion, these things did not show superiority to non-operative management and the analyses that they were able to show, which I, I think in my own anecdotal experience is fairly consistent with what I've seen. And Matt, does that, that gel with what you've seen in your own practice? Yes, definitely. And I, I think you have some patients that just love surgeries and they kind of wear them as a badge of honor. They'll be like, I've had 10 orthopedic surgeries. And some people try to do everything they can to stay out of the operating room. Uh, which is kind of my, that's, that's my play, Paul. I don't know about you, but uh, I, I think I just work with them, whichever they want, but we should tell our patients, uh, you know, especially if they're asking us, do I really need this? Is this really going to help me? This can inform your, your decision when you're talking with them, uh, especially if it's one of the ones on the list where we just don't know. Yeah, exactly right. So I wanted to include some dermatology pearls and because Paul, how do you feel about the treatment of alopecia and the and the framework? Did you have you always had a really solid framework for this since you were like a third year medical student? You were you've been teaching this forever. No, despite my own deep investment as my hairline recedes and my part gets wider, I have not actually. Um, I, I should be have been more invested and had a better framework for it. But I, it wasn't until we actually had a terrific episode with uh, Doctor Pacheco, I believe, that I, I actually developed any kind of framework. I yes. think that's what you're going to tell us about. 
Yeah, Dr. Pacheca, she's our she's in Washington at one of the large academic centers there, and she is our chief skin turnist or our chief of dermatology at Cashlack Memorial Hospital, and she told us about the the big three of alopecia. So alopecia just meaning hair loss and the big three. So this is how I think of it now. Um, and we've seen a lot of bags of hair this year. Paul, has anyone actually brought in a bag of hair for you? No, happily with the advent of Zoom, I, I've not had quite so much. So I have had patients try to demonstrate them pulling out their own hair, which I, I tell them to please not do that. Like I do, <laughs> I do trust what the patients tell me. So I've had several patients bring in the bag of hair. So here's how you can think about alopecia. Telogen effluvium is basically stress-related hair loss where normally we have some of the follicles are growing hair, some of them are shedding hair, and you lose like 50 to 200 hairs a day. That's normal. So it's normal to have a little bit of hair fall out when you're brushing your hair. Um, But when you have these periods of stress, which could be caused by surgery, pregnancy, whatever kind of illness, or or just a pandemic, Paul, a pandemic, then you can shift most of the hairs into the, the loss phase of things, and you get these big clumps of hair falling out. And classically, the patient comes in, I'm not losing hair in just one spot. I'm losing hair like everywhere. And uh, those people usually have telogen effluvium and reassurance is really what you can do for that. Um, We'll talk a little bit later about minoxidil, uh, the topical minoxidil, but uh, with the bag of hair, you know, that's, and and it's diffuse hair loss. That's the one I think of. Androgenic alopecia. I think most people are comfortable with male pattern baldness and recognizing that, but in women, Sometimes they get the receding stuff like uh, Paul and I have. Sometimes they get the uh, just the crown of the head in women. Instead of men get the front side alleys and the, the crown of their head, but women sometimes just get thinning on the crown of their head. And um, they can also be treated with uh, topical minoxidil. And then finally, alopecia areata is the bald spot. And that's where the person comes in and they're like trying to find their bald spot to show it to you. Those people you should refer immediately to dermatology and maybe prescribe them a topical steroid. And this was practice changing for me. I didn't know this, but sometimes that that tends to be an autoimmune thing and it can generalize and they can start to lose like all their hair everywhere. So get those people into dermatology ASAP. And then it's not part of the big three because fortunately it's not that common. But if you see anybody with scarring alopecia or if you think they have a connective tissue disease as well, you got to get those people right to dermatology. That's like an emergency. It's like a door to balloon time type thing. Like time is hair in those situations. Paul, did I miss any of the key features of that? Like any different ways you're thinking about those? No, I I, I, th- I mean, you alluded to this a little bit, but I I have seen a lot of COVID-related telogen effluvium. Like I, I think both the stress of just being alive and then even sometimes a COVID diagnosis. And I think even one case, I actually saw weirdly a case of uh, endocarditis associated telogen effluvium. So I think any kind of big health scare, um, and then all of a sudden oh, my hair is just all coming out. Like that's just one of the things to be on the differential. I, obviously other things can do it, but I, I feel like that's something I've seen a ton of, but otherwise I think you cover that really nicely. And we didn't talk about this with Dr. Pacheca, but I, I learned about it a little bit later. And since this is a presentation for the military crew, I had to mention uh, what I would add in as a fourth one, which is traction alopecia. And this is in occupations you know, whether you're wearing like a really tight man bun or you're just uh, wearing wearing a tight hairstyle um, or tying in braids to your hair or weaves, those can pull really, really firmly on the hairs and you can get some symmetrical hair loss. You can even get some low level inflama- inflammation like bumps and redness. Sometimes it needs to be treated 
with topical steroids or even topical antibiotics. So definitely be on the lookout for this one because it's super common and you really want to prevent it from happening by recognizing it early and telling people to uh, ease up on how tight they're pulling the the ponytail or their man bun. Um, Paul, did you ever have a man bun? I feel like maybe you did in the 90s. No? No, high ponytail, but no no man bun. <laughs> okay. There are different um, days. And then the workup for alopecia, uh, you want to look for scarring, as I said, because that's an emergency. Um, with with androgenic alopecia, there tends to be a lot of different size hail, uh, caliber to the hair. That's one of the ways you can recognize that. Um, if you listen to the full episode, we we go into a little bit more of the details on that with Dr. Pacheca, but the lab workup is pretty basic. Um, a, a, a thyroid, make sure they're not iron deficient. And uh, and then I would, vitamin D, I don't know, Paul, I don't really think vitamin <laughs> D causes hair loss. It's no. in, you'll, you'll read about it in like up to date is like, oh yeah, send a vitamin D. I feel like we send a vitamin D for every gut, like random fatigue, all this other stuff, but it never pans out. And then please don't send an ANA unless they really, you think they have lupus. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, and then this topical minoxidil, the last thing I'll say about this is they have to use it for 16 weeks to see benefit. Both the men's and the women's formulation are 5% now. I think in the past, maybe there was a lower, they weren't giving the women the good stuff, Paul. That's just, just another mark against gender parity. But anyway, uh, and you got to tell people, you got to coach them through it because they they may have some paradoxical shedding during the first few weeks of using topical minoxidil. And if they want to keep the gains that they make, they got to keep using it. So a yeah. little bit of a downside. Have you Have you used any of it clinically yet for your for your patients? I've been prescribing it more frequently now that I have some comfort in counseling about it. So I, I do recommend yeah. it. And I think one, I actually for a lot of patients, once they hear that it is forever and that there is this paradoxical shedding, I do have patients kind of bow out at the idea of trying it, but then others have tried it and have had some success with it. So it's, yeah, yeah I do. I do use this with fair frequency. And then if someone's really distressed about the hair loss, low threshold to send them to Durham because they have a lot of fancy stuff that they can do that we're just not equipped to do in the, on, uh, you know, in the primary care clinics. Hey, Curbsiders, I know you're like me. You love being an internist. You are internal medicine nerds. You love all the broad range of topics that we cover. We know a little bit about every organ system, and we take care of the sickest patients, and we take care of the whole patient. That's why we are proud to be internists. So join the ACP this National Internal Medicine Day. It's coming up later this week, October 28th. Let the world know how proud you are to be an internist. And to do that, the ACP has provided a lot of fun ways for you to join. Visit acponline.org forward slash NIMD21 and download posters and shareable posts for social media. You can update your social media profile picture with a National Internal Medicine Day frame and flood the internet with your internal medicine pride on October 28th. Recognize a colleague and spread your love for internal medicine. Plus, be sure to tag at ACP Internist and use the hashtag National Internal Medicine Day. Once again, visit acponline.org forward slash NIMD21 to start celebrating. That's acponline.org forward slash NIMD21. And let's celebrate National Internal Medicine Day because, like I said, we are the best. 
All right. So neuro, Paul, let's let's talk a little bit here and and we'll maybe we'll maybe we'll go a little quicker so we can try to get through some of the stuff that we uh have later on in the presentation that I definitely want to get to. Sure. So this is a little bit of a different one. I know we've been sort of going through articles um and and what have you, but I, I want to talk about the the episode two fifty seven with Dr. Sarah DeWitt from our, our own spectacular podcast. And Dr. DeWitt talked us through seizure disorder, which is something that I found fairly intimidating. And I, I, I think to a large extent, I had treated it as a mostly neurology problem. So I would see patients who had underlying seizure disorder, and I would say, follow them with neurology and sort of uh, close my eyes and grip my teeth and kind of hope for the best. And and Dr. DeWitt, I think, really reaffirmed the fact that seizure disorder is a primary care problem. And while neurology often will manage the medications and the workup, it's we were sort of responsible for the everything else. So some of the things that she talked about in terms of just sort of from a pure medical standpoint is just making sure that we're assessing seizure medication levels because that may fall to us, as well as monitoring for toxicities and side effects. So checking CBCs for those agents that may cause thrombocytopenia or checking a CMP to make sure that the renal and liver function are okay. And because we're checking vitamin D for everything, uh, especially for patients on carbamazepine or people with the inducers, check that as well. The other thing that I, I found uh, particularly impactful in my own practice is being especially aggressive about screening for mood disorders in patients with epilepsy. Um, the statistics I, I found really stunning in that patients with seizure disorder have 20 to 50% of them have depression or anxiety and are 3.5 to 6.8 times more likely to die by completed suicide. And I think, well, obviously, neurology will cheerfully manage the seizure part. I think managing mood disorders, managing depression, managing anxiety, screening for those things, taking a thoughtful history, that's very much a primary care thing. So I, I, I am now, rather than doing my PHQ2 and just kind of moving along, I will sort of spend some time, sit with the patient and really make sure that I'm, I'm being thoughtful and assessing thoroughly for underlying anxiety and depression. Paul, one thing I wanted to add in in this section here is non-epileptic seizures, which we used to call pseudo-seizures, I believe they're they're pretty stigmatized, the patients that have them. And one of the points she made is that a lot of patients, maybe it was like one in five or something like that, might have both non-epileptic seizures and epileptic seizures. And so, you know, don't just dismiss everybody that has non-epileptic seizures as, you know, they're faking it. Uh, I, I think that's not a patient-centered way to approach this. And, and talking with them openly about, listen, some patients can have both epileptic and non-epileptic seizures, and, you know, we're going to treat you for both things. And I think you know, addressing some of these mood mood things and just addressing the whole person might help both of the processes, especially the non-epileptic part. But let's talk about, Paul, like, I believe you walked in on someone having a seizure or you were in public and someone's having a seizure. And did you know what to do? I had a vague sense of things. Like, I, I know my ABCs. You know, I, I <laughs> it wasn't until about 15 minutes into the entire episode that I, for, that I remembered to tell the people there that I was a doctor, which made them feel better because um, otherwise <laughs> I was just some guy out for a jog. But yeah, I, I think <laughs> you were wearing some death metal shirt and like a Vans hat. <laughs> yeah, they they didn't believe me, but still, I told them I was a doctor. Um, but no, if, if you've ever if you've ever witnessed a seizure and it's it's not something you're experienced with, it can be a very scary thing. And Doctor Dewitt gave some very practical considerations that we can counsel patient family members or incorporate into our own practice if we happen to witness a seizure. And so one of the things that I, I never would have thought of is just taking a video if you can. Uh, that's very helpful to neurologists later to actually get a sense of what the seizure looks like, and then along those lines timing the seizure, again, when you're in it, especially if you're not in a controlled environment, it feels it feels like it's lasting for four and a half hours, even though everything's actually probably moving relatively quickly. So just getting a sense of how long it lasts can be very helpful too. And then maintaining patient safety. So checking your ABCs, having the patient lay on their side, making sure the environment around them is safe, that they're not going to hit their head on anything, that they're, that they're as secure as they can be without, you know, without holding them down too much. And then also checking for a medical ID and making sure you're not missing any 
uh, underlying medical issues that can be quickly corrected that might be a cause of the seizure. For instance, if they would be hypoglycemic, for instance, that would be a quick way to hopefully pick that up. And we should not, if you're not in the hospital, I would take, it would not take much for me to call 911 for a witness seizure outside yeah. the hospital. I, I think it's better safe than sorry. And then in, in the office setting, when you're counseling patients with seizure disorder, uh, talking about triggers, I, again, following solidly on primary care, making sure the patients are getting enough sleep, making sure they're they're being uh, careful with alcohol use or other substance use, knowing that certain antibiotics can certainly lower your seizure threshold as well as other medications, obviously. And then even things like life stress can certainly lower your seizure threshold. So counseling and supporting patients around those things is, is again, a very primary care thing to do. And then from a safety standpoint, things that we should bring up, supervision if you're going to be around water, wearing a helmet, uh, if you're going to be doing any activity where you might have the risk of striking your head, uh, making sure you're not cooking alone, avoiding ladders is important and not something I would have thought of prior to this episode. And then I know, Matt, that you were particularly obsessed with the seizure, uh, the epilepsy safe pillow. Um, I, I don't know well, what the evidence yeah, is that, like. But you're... That, that just drew to my attention that a lot of people with seizures die in their sleep, uh, particularly they think maybe they're laying face down and they're uh, asphyxiating in their pillows. So they make these pillows now that have allow airflow through them to try to prevent asphyxiation and when I looked it up, I you know, there's not strong evidence yet that they actually work, but uh, just the realization that some of these patients, yeah. you know, die in their sleep is something that I guess them and their their partners should be aware of, and and that these pillows exist, they can try them out. If I learned that information, I probably would buy one of those pillows if I had a seizure disorder, <laughs> just because uh, that sounds terrifying. Let's move on. You know. Quick typing of dementia is something that Josh Wee told us that th this was one of the things uh, we we did an episode on dementia made simple with Dr. Josh Wee, who's a fantastic geriatrician, and you know he had this very simple way of breaking down like what type of dementia patients have, um, and and I think patients always want to know this, so he simply said, I just look, uh, are they walking slow? Are they talking slow? If they are, then I think they're on this right hand side here. They they could have a vascular dementia or they could have one of the Parkinson's type dementias. And the way you differentiate between those two is patients with tons of vascular features, you know, risk factors, probably have the vascular dementia, especially if they've had prior strokes. And then patients, otherwise, maybe they have uh, one of the Parkinson's ones. And with Lewy body dementia, the way you tell it apart from Parkinson's disease is the dementia comes first, and then the features of Parkinsonism come second. Um, whereas in Parkinson's, you know, you, you get Parkinson's symptoms for a year or more, and then eventually you, you develop dementia. On the other side of things, for someone who is, I, it says walking fast, talking fast, but really it's like the person that's still moving pretty normal speeds. If they're an older person, it's probably Alzheimer's dementia. And if they're a younger person, it could be frontotemporal, could be Alzheimer's dementia. And Dr. Wee, to quote him, I mean, he's like, you know, for a non-neurologist, this gets me in the ballpark most of the time. And so I just really loved this breakdown. And, you know, why does it matter? What can we do about dementia? Well, patient education, talking to them and their families. And Paul, I, I mean, you know, I, I'm a huge Seidenfeld fan. I know you are too. So uh, the summer of George, that's basically, you got to tell them, just be like, you know, this is, this is the summer. You're, you're in the summer of George. I mean, they have to try, <laughs> even if with dementia, they should still try to live as full of a life as they can, support the patient in their ADLs, support the caregiver. The medications, another favorite quote from this episode is that these medications are not good enough to tolerate side effects. I mean, you look at the trials, they had statistical benefit, but clinically that benefit is pretty suspect. And I don't use these medications that often. 
If I do, it's always a shared decision and we're looking out for side effects. Uh, Paul, anything you had to add about any of this or anything you do differently? No, I think that's right. Like, and, and the side effects are not nothing. And I, I think the number needed to harm is actually shockingly low, if I remember correctly. So really, yeah. it's it's these are medications I tend to de-escalate far more than I ever escalate. So I, 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 yeah. I, I think that's all right. But what is there anything we can do to prevent dementia, Dr. Wado? Thank you, because that is what all my middle-aged people, they're taking care of their parents with dementia, their life right now as a caregiver is really hard. And good news for us as primary care doctors, Paul, is basically it's like all the things that you would tell people to do just to take general good care of themselves is uh, what you would do to try to prevent dementia. So things like controlling their blood pressure, that was one of the actual big ones, uh, limiting substances like alcohol and tobacco. Head injuries can't be good for uh, future development of dementia. <laughs> Not really good Paul. for anything, to be honest. Maintain a healthy weight. Have a social. Uh, you know, be active. Be social. Uh, pretty common sense stuff. This was uh, from the Lancet in 2020 by Livingston, and I just love that. And so I think it it has helped. This article has helped me a lot when I'm talking to patients. They're like, "What can I do to prevent dementia?" We don't have medications yet. Maybe in the next decade or two, we'll have some preventive medications or some better treatments. But for right now. The best we have is like good old-fashioned primary care, street knowledge, Paul. That's what I'm calling it. <laughs> sure. All right. Cardio. Uh, everyone everyone listening to this will be very happy to know that Paul's five day, five cups a day of coffee, maybe six. How, how many cups of coffee are you have in a day now, Paul? Are you still just basically pouring it in at all hours? Yeah, I mean, basically, yeah. But I mean, because the evidence backs me up. The evidence does back you up. We... Uh, we recently were, Paul and I were talking about AFib recently and, you know, it doesn't, it's surprisingly, everyone thinks, oh, caffeine, it's going to give me arrhythmias. It actually was inversely proportional to tachyarrhythmias. The more coffee they drank, the less tachyarrhythmias they had. Paul, I have no idea if the science holds up, but I, I love it. And, uh, we can all, we can all rest easy. I mean, this is one more in a chain of studies, right? Because like, it, this I mean, is it's, right. Like the one thing that actually helps with metabolic associated fatty liver disease, like it, it actually, they're showing like, I think it actually prolongs life. Like it just, I don't know. I, it, it's almost suspicious that there's a big coffee <laughs> out there. That's just like squashing all these negative studies. I, uh, no, I, I really, no, that's no, but you know, if, if that were the case, Paul, alcohol, alcohol and coffee, I don't know which would be stronger, but you'd have to think big alcohol would be able to squash all this bad press they get in the medical literature. But even moderate alcohol, not great, you guys. So, uh, you know, I'm just saying, go Irish coffees without the whiskey is, is that's the take home point. So coffee is, is what we're going to <laughs> <laughs> All right. Paul, we talked about blood pressure with Dr. Wanpen Vongpadanasan. She's a cardiologist and a hypertension expert at UT Southwestern. And, you know, I've been really thinking about hypertension. I'm in primary care. Everyone's uncontrolled. We we suck at this, Paul. Why? Why are we so bad at it? I, well, yeah, I think in part because they keep moving the goalposts, but also it's, just, That's true. It's, it's also very hard to treat. We have a lot of medications. I still think we haven't quite cracked the code as to how to give those medications, though I think you have some ideas about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, most adults are uncontrolled, even if you go by the old 140 over 90. Um, so most adults are uncontrolled. The way that I talk to residents, the way that I talk to patients about this is, or trainees of any kind, is like most patients need two medicines or more. You saw that in sprint trial. You've seen that. That's been around for a long time. So most patients are going to need two meds, Paul. So what are we to do about that? I mean, I I think 
the way to simplify blood pressure is like kind of the way we think about diabetes. Like if you can get the A1C low, you know, great. But are you gonna are you gonna add more meds to get it lower? That's kind of where you're thinking. Like where where do we stop? But I think for most adults, I'm gonna generalize a lot here. If you can get them to 130 over 80 or less, that's great. And it does seem that lower is better, even for older adults. We don't have a lot of great information about really frail older adults. 140 over 90 is acceptable. And as I said, that would be a win. If we could get if we get most people there, Paul, that alone would be a win. And then the ACP guideline from 2017 mentions, you know, a systolic blood pressure of under 150 for older adults, like people over 60. That has pretty strong evidence. So we know like at the very minimum, you got to keep them under 150. Um, Paul, does your approach differ at all here? Are you are you pushing all comers to under 130? I, I still, so no is a short answer. And I, it's, I don't want to get myself in trouble with this large audience. I still, as you mentioned, I'm not sure if frailty was taken into account with the sprint trial. These were community dwelling adults. Um, so I, I think while the evidence is mounting that probably it's safer and probably better for most older patients to push for lower blood pressure goals, I still think there is a subset and I think we've all seen this practice that just do worse with it. They have adverse events. They, and I think those patients are multi. Or they just feel bad. Yeah. Or they just feel terrible. Yeah. I think that's also part of it too. So I think the evidence is stacking up about being a little bit more aggressive in your older patients, but I still think you have to look at the individual in front of you and not just broadly apply whatever guideline that you, that you like. So, you know, the, the question about using like one medicine, pushing it to max dose or using a, a combination pill, or or if, if they can't afford a combination pill, or if it's not available, using two pills. That's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. And then the makeup of those combination pills, Paul, too. So we'll get into this a little bit. So uh, just easing the tension, Paul. Just just easing <laughs> the tension. Paul, by the way, my kids are begging me to see Happy Gilmore. The I'm oldest is it. nine. It's fine. Would I be a bad parent to show to a seven, eight, and nine-year-old? They have to learn sometime. I think it's fine. <laughs> All right. So quarter dose medications, the geriatricians love this. So either one or two meds at quarter dose, uh, you know, is safer than, you know, pushing one med up to max dose. I think that's pretty intuitive side effect wise. And what I've started to do a lot lately is use either a single combination pill at a quarter dose or, uh, so two meds at a quarter dose. So that would be like 2.5 of amlodipine and, uh, uh, 10 of lisinopril, Paul. Um, so quarter dose of both, quarter of the maximum dose of both those medications. Um, that's something that that I might do. And uh, this approach, you know, as I said, most patients need two meds. We're doing terrible. I think what happens is you start patient on a med, you move it to the half dose, then you move it to the full dose. They're not budging. And then you just, you know, the patient's hesitant to start another med. So I like to write out the gate, start them on a combination pill, I do use a lot of the lisinopril HCTZ because it's generic and cheap. I know that's not necessarily a problem for our audience here, but that's something that I've been doing. And as I said, like two medicines at a lower dose, so either less than half the maximum dose of both agents, um, so either quarter dose or half dose of both agents, seems to have less side effects and, and good BP control. But Paul, does it matter what agents I choose when I'm putting uh, this together? So you mentioned that you like the lisinopril combo, which I, I agree with because of availability. I'm not sure, and obviously I won't ask folks to self-disclose, but if you ever had a patient go to the ICU with angioedema, and then after the fact, you're like, oh, well, that was actually a known side effect of that medication. And then they ask you, well, then why would you prescribe it to me? It's hard. 
it's hard to look those patients in the eye. Like I know there's lots of benefits with ACEs, which is why we like them so much, but there's also comparable benefits with ARBs, I think historically that we've seen going through. And I think one study that came out relatively recently compared ACEs and ARBs and looked at both the benefits and then also the potential adverse effects. And this is by Chan et al. on hypertension um, just within the, the past couple of months. This was a retrospective new user comparator cohort for what it's worth. And they looked at a ton of patient data. We're talking like over 2 million patients, I think, on ACEs and over 600,000 who were taking ARBs. And they aggregated the data and looked at benefit and then also looked at adverse events. And the, the big takeaway is that in terms of benefits, ACEs and ARBs are comparable in terms of preventing things like first heart attack or new onset heart failure or composite cardiovascular events. They, they One doesn't seem to favor the other. You know, there's some some of those individuals sort of leaned a little bit towards ARBs, but for the most part, they're comparable between ACEs and ARBs. But in terms of the adverse effects, not surprisingly, ARBs have a much lower risk of angioedema, a much lower risk of cough. And then depending on what corrections you use, there's also lower incidences of pancreatitis and even GI bleeding, which was not even something that was on my radar as something to worry about with ACE inhibitors. But yeah, the, me either. the takeaway here is that if you can get away with ARBs, at least this is my own practice, uh, if I can get away with ARBs and they have all the benefits without the potential harms, that is, tends to be what I'm leaning towards. And I think there's obviously some practical considerations with the recent batch of recalls and your combo medications are kind of limited compared to ACEs. But on, on balance, if I'm going to just start a monotherapy, at least I will I will choose an ARB um, 10 times out of 10 over ACE inhibitors now. And this, this study yeah. seems to support that. I think you've changed my practice with this, Paul. And and some of the uh, $4 formularies do have an angiotensin and thiazide diuretic combination pill. So that's probably something I'll try to start using a little bit more. But it, it is, you know, the logistics of this is somewhat of a thing. And lots of patients do just fine with, with ACE inhibitors. So, you know, I don't think it's malpractice to prescribe an ACE inhibitor. Yeah, but I, I think... Um, if you really had the choice between the two and it was easy, then maybe the ARB wins out based on this. Yep. All right. So, Paul, with this hypertension nonsense, I told you we <laughs> suck at it. Uh, we're going to try to use combination pills, lower doses, try to get people at least under 140 over 90, ideally under 130 over 80 for most of our adult patients. But what about this hyperaldosteronism? It's been, you know, Dr. Von Padden was like, it's it's common. You should be checking. and I was always told you check, is the renin suppressed? Is the aldo plasma aldosterone high? And it turns out that plasma aldosterone is, it has poor sensitivity. So, you know, one reading is not necessarily going to, it should not tell you that, oh, this patient rules out for hyperaldosteronism. So what Dr. Funder has been writing about in just this year, uh, some really interesting articles is that don't buy a single aldosterone, med uh, you know, if there's a single aldosterone measurement, you know, don't believe it necessarily. And if the renin is suppressed, you know, that should suggest they still could have hyperaldosteronism. And they were saying we should think about doing like 24-hour urines for measuring aldosterone. Maybe we should even be doing empiric trials of spironolactone or an agent like it and seeing like after a month, like does the blood pressure drop significantly? So, this is not yet in all the guidelines, but I think what how this will change my practice immediately is if I'm testing for al, uh, aldosterone and renin, if the aldosterone is seems to be normal, but the renin is suppressed, then I might not just like say, oh, they don't have hyperaldosteronism. I might still, you know, if my suspicion's high enough and the renin's suppressed, I might look around a little more or I might give an empiric trial. Paul, what do you, what do you think about this? 
I, I have mixed feelings. I, you know, I, I do appreciate that hyperaldo is is pretty prevalent. Um, at least the, the more we check, the more often we actually seem to find it. So I, I think having a low threshold to worry about it makes sense. I think because hypertension itself is so prevalent, and then you throw in a high percentage of those patients potentially having hyperaldo, and then we're sort of committing a lot of our patients to a lot of lab testing before we treat. My own practice might be I might just pull out um, the spironolactone a little bit earlier in terms of trying to actually manage something. So if I have someone who's on two agents that are maximally dosed and just not budging, they're like, Doc, I'm telling you, I'm taking my medications. I might have a lower threshold to sort of my next line might be aldactone. But it's I'm still I still have to pour through some of the literature before it's going to change my practice too, too I, much. I, I think. still think it comes back to Kidney Boy. He told us this like four years ago, Paul. He's like, I get he, he kidney boy Joltoff, he gets referred patients for high blood pressure all the time. And back then he's like, there's two things I do. Here's my two moves for people with resistant hypertension. I swap out the HCTZ, I put in I put them on chlorthalidone instead. And then I add spironolactone. And he's like, I can just sometimes he can stop other medications once he makes those changes. So, you know, not all meds are created equal. And uh think about think about some of these things. But Paul. We have some other things to talk about. Um, so <laughs> this chronic cough, uh, people, I'll, full <laughs> disclosure, I pretty much just put this in here for uh, for the GIF uh, that I wanted to show. Uh, Thelma and Louise, uh, we talked to our friend, Dr. Brad Hayward, about chronic cough. And he was basically like, "I because I, this, this always stressed me out, Paul. Like patients are so distraught about these coughs. And he said, you just have to basically tell them, look, I'm there for you. We're in it in the, for the long haul. You know, we're going to drive off the cliff in the convertible together. Uh, all roads lead to bronchoscopy if we can't find an yeah. answer. And, you know, uh, but it, in all seriousness, the the main practice changing thing for me from that discussion, and, and we're getting into cough and cold season now, Paul, although I guess we've been in a endless cough and cold season with the pandemic. Um, yeah. Anyway. Trial of inhaled corticosteroids is what he recommended for uh, post-viral cough. Paul, have you done this yet? I have. I have. And I, I think that the, the party line years before, I think when we were both in training, was albuterol helped improve mucociliary elevator clearance and that kind of stuff. And so we were doing a lot of uh, the short-acting beta agonists. But now I've, I'm a convert and I now switch more towards the, the ICS for post-viral cough. And sometimes this helps and sometimes they don't take it. But with chronic cough, I will just say the main take-home point is you got to tell the patient, I'm with, I'm with you. I hear you. I support you. <laughs> We're going to go through everything together sure. and, and we'll, f we'll figure this out. And if we don't, uh, maybe, you know, you get a bronchoscopy and some gabapentin, you know, that's, that's what it comes down to. This <laughs> is a very, <laughs> <laughs> this is a very quick, very quick slide here. So if, if I don't know if Stuart's watching, but, uh, Stuart Brigham, he loves talking about Flonase shouldn't be given every day. And uh, turns out fluticasone or intranasal steroids, they actually do work if you use them on a PRN basis. You know, people always said you got to use them uh, every day for them to really have benefit. But um, there's been some evidence that you can get uh, similar control of like the perennial rhinitis symptoms and a lower overall steroid exposure. So, you know, you have the patients have been taking them every day for 10 years. Maybe, maybe tell them to back off a little. Paul, anything to add about this? No, I, it's again, the patients always know whether it's the sort of the, the as needed inhaled corticosteroids or the as needed um, intranasal the steroids. The iron three days a week. The iron three days a week. Like patients have this stuff figured out long before we do. So it just, it, it yeah. all tracks. All right. So, Paul, GI, this Kiwi thing, 
you know, my main reason for including this slide at all is, okay, we know prune juice, people know to take prune juice when they're constipated. People know to try like psyllium um, fiber. It's over the counter. They can mix it in with their drinks. But this kiwi thing, it's just, Paul, in the study, it was, it, it, they're like, it was partially randomized. I'm like, what the heck does that mean, Paul? <laughs> Do you know why it was partially randomized, Paul? Some people don't like kiwis. No, because it's so impractical because <laughs> kiwis are only available, like it's a seasonal fruit, Paul. It's not easily available I, where I they were doing the study year round. Deeply wish you would stop yelling at me about kiwis. This was not part so, of the presentation. So the first, sorry, I, I'm, I'm getting too <laughs> worked up over worked kiwis. Uh, I'm trying to keep the audience with us. I see. So anyway, the, the, Paul, they didn't have enough kiwis. So they had to randomize the first like 30 people or something to get kiwi because it, otherwise they were going to go out of season, which I thought was just hilarious. And then the second question I had, Paul, is do you have to eat the skin to get the benefit, uh, this anti-constant, you know, to get the bowel movements with kiwis? What do you think the answer is, Paul? I'm going to say no. And I, I just wanted the audience to know that Matt has warned me that he was going to talk about this. He would not tell me the answer to this. And I did not look it up <laughs> because I wanted to be surprised in the moment. So I genuinely don't know if we're supposed to be eating the skin or not. So I, I hope that you will now tell me. Yeah, I believe, Paul, you were calling someone a lunatic on Twitter because they <laughs> they admitted to eating the skin of a kiwi. Is that true? I mean, I I mean, not on record, no. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it turns out, Paul, they were skinned kiwi fruits, so you uh, did not have to eat the skins. Excellent. And, but, but, Paul, the conclusion, as the book title says, no matter which one of these three treatments, everybody poops, Paul. So they all work. So if your patients don't want to take you know, Peg or Senna, Senecott, whatever, you, you can try one of these three things. Now, Paul, with colorectal cancer screening, colonoscopy is the only thing that works. Is that correct? I mean, clearly in terms of the framework that we're setting up, that would not be correct. And so <laughs> it's as, as the audience almost certainly knows that the USPSTF, uh, I don't want to say upgraded, changed their, their colorectal cancer screening guidelines. And I think the big change was actually lowering the age that you start to age 45 for patients, which Exciting! Everyone was everyone was pumped up about it. In terms of the screening options, they are fairly agnostic. They don't have they don't make any formal recommendations. I think the things to bear in mind is that the intervals in which you do the screening matter. And again, this is for sort of lower risk patients who don't have high risk features like a family history of colon cancer or multiple polyps before. But you have the options. So colonoscopy is great. Um, direct visualization is fantastic. And you know if you have a benign colonoscopy, that can be up to ten years follow up before you have to worry about it again. And then as we move down this list. The stool DNA fit testing, which is sort of the new kid on the block, um, also fine. And again, it's recommended on par, but you have to be doing it much more frequently. One to three years is the current recommendation. I still think they're trying to figure out the specific interval for that. And everything else seems to, to fall somewhere in between. So know that you have many screening options. Not None of them are recommended over the other ones, but they do have different intervals. So when you're counseling your patients, that's the, the shared decision-making conversation to have is how often you want this done and how invasive do you want this to be. And I think it's important because uh, the majority of places I've worked in my career were pretty much pushing colonoscopies. I think there's a lot of secondary gain uh, for for getting a lot of colonoscopies. Like the colonoscopy suite, like subsidizes the whole hospital, you know, <laughs> the whole section. But uh, it, with for being patient centered, a lot of patients don't want to go through a colonoscopy or need to be convinced that they need a colonoscopy. And uh, I'm doing sending a lot more stool testing now as a result of this. Um, and, and just making a shared decision with the patient. There were also new polyp guidelines that came out, you know, pretty much in tandem with this. And the the things that I, I think people should remember is advanced adenoma is defined as a polyp that's greater than a centimeter. 
if it has tubulovillus or villus histology or high-grade dysplasia, or if they have three or more adenomas, like tubular adenomas. People with just one to two adenomas that don't meet criteria for advanced adenoma, um, so they're less than a less than a millimeter and the histology isn't worrisome, um, those people actually there's there's new screening intervals now. It's not like you have a single tubular adenoma, you're automatically on the five-year plan. No, now it's like if you have a normal colonoscopy, it's 10 years. If you have one or two adenomas and they're under a centimeter, then you you can you can extend it to seven to ten years. So that's a big win for the patients. Uh, it's a longer interval, and if they've had polyps removed that weren't any of the high risk ones, and then they you get a, a follow up. Let's say they have like one or two small adenomas, Paul, and then they have a normal colonoscopy at their seven year follow up. They can go on to back onto the ten year plan. And I think in the past I was always taught like. You know, once you have polyps, you're on a five-year plan for the rest of your life, right. and and that's that's now no longer the case. This change anything for you, Paul? Not, you know, I still will rely on my friends and and um, and gastroenterology to sort of help guide me with this because I I, I think there's they're better versed in the guidelines, especially when you kind of get in things like uh, you know the the sessile polyps and stuff that I think we're not gonna we're not have time to get into. But it is nice that I can be a little bit more relaxed about sort of the, the one to two benign small adenomas. Like I think that's something that we see all the time. So I think being able to have relaxed screening intervals is gonna be great. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, quickly um to get into this heavy menstrual bleeding, Paul, this is something that I I just wasn't really sure what to do. I'd always be like, okay, let's just go see gynecology. We we recently did an episode with Dr. Samuelson Banow and you know, she told us very low threshold. In fact, she she stresses you should be checking ferritin in young women who are still having menstru- menstruation or or just anyone with a uterus who is menstruating. And uh, you should be checking ferritin. And then if based on the bleeding history, if they're having heavy menstrual bleeding, you might check coags, you might think about von Willebrand's uh, deficiency, and you might check for that as well. What I really wanted to talk about is other than treating the iron, and Paul, this is this is a picture here of some iron filings uh, in a glass of what I like to say, let's, let's pretend this is wine, Paul. And, uh, when we were prepping for this, we found out uh, that like one of the old remedies was like iron filings in wine was like, one of the old treatments for iron deficiency, which I thought was super cool, but probably dangerous. <laughs> um, and, uh, so to treat the bleeding, what do we do for that? Paul, do you, did you have like a framework for this? Like that when people were coming in with, with heavy menstrual bleeding? Uh, not not a good one. I know. I I I think one of the things you're going to talk about is the discussion about tranexamic acid, which is a medication that intimidated me greatly. I think before this episode, and now that yeah. I have a little bit more comfort with it, I've not been able to use it yet. But I look forward to being able to. What about t- talk to me about it? Yeah. I know that you're excited about it. Yeah. So I I mean I I was aware that oral contraceptive pills like hormonal therapy could help with the bleeding, and NSAIDs counterintuitively NSAIDs can actually help with the bleeding too. I wasn't exactly sure why that was. And when I asked her, she was like, we don't exactly know why they work, but they do work. So NSAIDs can help. But uh, this tranexamic acid, they come in 650 milligram tablets and you can prescribe 1300 milligrams three times a day for five days. They do not cause blood clots. She said that many, many times. They do not cause blood clots. This is safe to do. So you can give this to your patients and it works pretty well. You got to check your formulary to see what it's going to cost. I was looking it up on on the the GoodRx site. Looks like it might be about like thirty to fifty dollars a month if they wanted to get like a full five days of treatment for this. So I don't know if you have patients on Medicaid or 
you know, patients who, who are uninsured, if this is going to be affordable for them, but for your other patients, um, this might be something you think about. Otherwise, NSAIDs, oral contraceptive pills, probably the cheaper option for some patients, um, if that's a consideration in your practice. So, uh, you know, uh, let us know, tweet at us if you're using tranexamic <laughs> acid. You don't have to do that. And then <laughs> finally, um, you know, Paul, there's, there's a limit to how long I can use a varenicline and I, we probably give too much nicotine, correct? So wrong on all counts. Um, and we'll, I just, I think in the interest of time, this is sort of where we'll wrap it up. But I, I, I think the points that we wanted to make here is that varenicline, and there's some data to back this up, is something that I think historically has been used for a couple of months. And then you either call it a treatment failure or don't. And with Dr. Baldessardi and now some more recent research, varenicline can be continued for a while because it's almost certainly safer than tobacco is long in the short of it. It's a great, effective, should be first-line medication, should be offered to all patients who can tolerate it who are, who are using tobacco and are interested in quitting. Um, and don't be afraid to continue it if it's working and patients feel like they still need the help uh, with their absence from tobacco use. The other point that he made is we tend to underdose nicotine replacement therapy. Uh, for patients who are smoking while on nicotine replacement therapy, that's probably an indication that we're actually just underdosing the nicotine that we're giving them. So, you know, he said even for patients who are smoking more than a pack a day, you can consider using two patches and don't have patients take their patches off to smoke. Um, that's They don't need to do that. They will actually enjoy the cigarette less if they're smoking while using the patch, and that's perfectly okay. That's actually probably desirable. And I think the last addiction medicine point that I, I would make um, as we're in the final uh, minute or so here is just our entreaty to you to, um, if you're not prescribing Suboxone, um, I, there's a lot of talk about getting rid of the X waiver now sort of modified, and it's relatively painless to actually be able to apply to prescribe Suboxone or buprenorphine now. Uh, I think both Matt and I would strongly encourage you to consider doing that if that's something you have even life's interest in. It really is a, a life-saving medication that changes patients' lives almost immediately. And so much of what we do in primary care is, you know, I may have prevented this bad thing from happening 20 years from now, but this is something that you can do that causes almost immediate benefit and, and kind of gives patients their lives back. So if, you've, if you're not prescribing buprenorphine, I would just urge you to consider it and, uh, and please use your, your medical expertise to help others. I know any other thoughts about that, Matt? No, please just uh, get get your X waiver. Uh, it's not waived yet, so get an X waiver. Start prescribing buprenorphine, and uh, you know, l- learn how to uh, treat your patients with opioid uh, use disorder. So we wanted to thank everybody for inviting us, Dr. Walters, Dr. Holly Malloy, Dr. Hunting Hockey, who I've been in touch with throughout this process, and and everyone else uh, who was in touch with us. Um, thank you so much. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. <laughs> there it is. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. And we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. But to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. I wanted to give a special thanks to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Mad Dog Maddie Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganov is on the website, MJ Allen and Jeff Carter are on the transcription team, and Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music, and we should also thank Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio, and as always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams, thank you. And goodbye.